0: Welcome everybody to the Scottsdale study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous today. Today is the 17th of February 2024. My name is Audrey and I'm from Ireland and I'm your host for today's study. The co-hosts today are Mary S and Nancy J who will do a Q&A. If you have any questions during the meeting please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat. The chat function will be disabled <clears> <throat> five minutes before the Q&A. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during the study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link for the seventh Tradition, and this money goes towards... The cost of the Zoom account, uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to Intergroup, Arizona Serenity in the Desert, and World Service Organization. We will post these in the link, the link in the chat function. And we will also post the recordings from the previous weeks. I will now hand you over to Harlan G., who will take us through the big book. Thanks, Harlan. Thanks, Audrey. Thank you very much. And I hope everybody's having a great
1: Saturday. It's going to be about 75 degrees here today in Phoenix, in Scottsdale. And I hope that it's beautiful wherever you are. And whether you're listening on uh, podcast or whether you're here right now, I hope you're going to have a great day. I am so excited to be talking about Bill's story because I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. This is one of my favorite chapters. There's just so much information in here, and the unfortunate reality is, is that so much of it is missed, unless you know what it is you're looking for, so much of it can be missed. And we've been talking about Bill Wilson, and we've been talking about the fact that Bill's story was originally uh, slated to be in the back of the book, it was going to have the story section in the back of the book. Well, this guy Tom Uzzle was brought in in uh, late 1938 and early 39 uh, to edit the content, and Janet Blair was brought in to edit the grammar, to edit punctuation, things like that. And Tom Uzzle took Bill's story, and he chopped off about half of it. Bill Bill had all kinds of details about things that Uzzle felt was just not going to serve anyone. So he cut it almost in half, but he did something else. He took Bill's story, and he moved it from this section of the book uh, where the stories appear, and he moved it to this chapter. It used to be chapter two because the doctor's opinion was chapter one and Bill's story was originally chapter two. There is a solution with chapter three and so on. Well, he moved it. And the reason he moved it is this is the purpose. Bill's story is such today that in order for me to identify into Overeaters Anonymous, it's easiest for me to do it if I can look at the way Bill thinks and compare it to the way I think and look at the way Bill drinks and see if it's not the way I eat. So if I'm eating the way Bill drinks and I'm thinking the way Bill thinks, chances are very, very good that I am a compulsive overeater and I'm in the right place. I'm in Overeaters Anonymous. Very, very important that this story is where it is. Is it odd or is it God? Mm -hmm. And we've talked about the fact that Bill was a very determined little boy whose life was shattered in 1906 when he was 10 years old his mother and father divorced. And when they divorced, his dad went out to Western Canada. And what actually happened was it was told to them that dad was going on a business trip. He only forgot one thing, he forgot to come home. He never did come home. And he was not a major player in Bill's life. He was not a major player in Dorothy's life. Dorothy is Bill's sister. And uh, she will marry Dr. Leonard Strong, who's going to come into focus in our story just a little bit later on, not today, perhaps, but in a, a, the next week. OK, now, Bill was a very smart and very determined child. He suffered from an inferiority complex. He was very traumatized by the divorce of his parents. And he never felt quite up to being in the world. And he looked at life, he looked at people and he saw them walking and talking and he saw them living their lives. And he perceived, although this may not be true that they were, he perceived that they were happier than him, more secure than him. He perceived that they would go by and that they sort of had an instruction manual that he did not have. And he always felt very scared. And I think if you asked me, and if I was able to answer you honestly, which I probably wasn't, during the first maybe 30, 40 years of my life, maybe even today, maybe even today, if you asked me, how do you feel? I would, not today so much, but maybe I would tell you if I could get in touch with honesty, I'm scared. And if you ask me, what am I scared of? I would say everything. I was scared of people. I was scared of things. I was just scared of the world. The world seemed overwhelming to me. And it seemed that other people had it together and that I did not. It seemed that other people had some instruction manual that I did not have. I came from a very tumultuous childhood. My mother and father fought constantly. I lived in a battleground constantly. And although we all loved each other, the fighting and the arguing was just unbelievably overwhelming to me. And I just saw that other kids had younger parents. Mine were older. Other kids had wealthier parents. Mine, we were a flat tire away from the street most of the time. I I just, I never felt like I was supposed to feel. And then one day I noticed that when I was eating an Almond Joy bar, when I was eating a Kit Kat bar, when I was eating uh, a pizza or French fries or whatever that may be, something inside of me changed. And that something was called the effect. And that effect changed, altered my perception of reality enough so that I felt like I was supposed to feel in my mind. I felt confident. I felt like I could dare to dream dare to live, dare to believe. But that feeling was fleeting and it didn't last more than nine or 10 seconds. And when that feeling was over with, I felt scared again and horrible. But by that time I had triggered the physical allergy and I was eating much, 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 much more than I had originally planned on eating. And so my life was just in a tailspin, just in a tailspin. Bill's story, and we're going to visit that again today, illustrates another thing that is very, very important for us to know. And that is that the disease is not only about a physical allergy. It's not only about a twist of the mind. It's not only about a mental blank spot, which makes it so that we forget the horror of the binge of a day, a week, a month ago, an hour ago, but it is also about the fact that the disease is permanent It never goes away. It is progressive. It gets worse and worse and worse over time, whether we're eating or not, whether we're purging or not, whether we're restricting or not, whether we're drinking or not. The disease continues to get worse with every day that passes and we have to do more and more. And for so many times in my life, so many uh, uh, periods of time in my life, I wasn't doing more and more, I was doing the same, or I was doing less, and the disease caught up with me, and it tackled me from behind, and it, it, just, it just had me in its grip, and I couldn't understand what was happening. I didn't know if I was crazy, but I knew one thing, I didn't want to live in this world I just didn't know how I knew I couldn't live with the food and I was convinced I couldn't live without the food. So if I can't live with the food and I can't live without the food, I don't want to live at all. And that was where I was for much of my childhood, much of my teenage years, much of my 20s. I was absolutely begging God for death most of the time. I never was gonna actively kill myself, but I might as well because I was on, I was i was death by Dorito, death by Dorito, death by Almond Joy, death by Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Well, that was my life and Bill's story up to this point illustrates that beautifully because in the first eight pages of Bill's story and we're, we're halfway done with the first eight, it is about Bill's plunge into the nadir of his alcoholism. It is about Bill's plunge into the abyss of his addiction. Okay, we're going to pick this up now on page four. At the bottom of the page, we went to live with my wife's parents. Now, before we go to page four and we look at we went to live with my wife's parents, I want you to hear this because it's key for my understanding and because it's key for my understanding, maybe it's key for you. We are all products of our time and our place. We are products of our time and our place. And in the world that we live in today, men and women enjoy a more egalitarian existence in our culture. Egalitarian meaning equal. So, In in the culture of the 1920s, in the culture of the 1930s, this was not an egalitarian culture. This was a culture of male dominance. The men were expected to be the breadwinners. The men were expected to support their wives. The men had expectations put upon them by society that if they couldn't live up to those expectations as the breadwinner, the provider, what have you, they were looked upon Uh, as less than rather than equal to or more than. Okay. So we are all products of our time and our place. Very important for me to remember that. And I'm thinking it may be important for you to remember that too. Now, again, before we begin this paragraph, that begins on page four, we went to live with my wife's parents. I wanna give you a little bit of a background on what is happening here. The year is 1931. And in 1928 and in 1930, Lois had two ectopic pregnancies. And the second of the ectopic pregnancy resulted in hemorrhaging where she almost died. Now, this was in the days when doctors made house calls and Lois could not reach her doctor. There were no cell phones at that time. There was none of that. And she couldn't reach her physician. So her father, Dr. Clark Burnham, Lois is a Burnham. Lois's maiden name is Burnham. Um, And her father, Dr. Clark Burnham, was a surgeon, a gynecologist, and he was a genetics doctor. He was a surgeon, a gynecologist, and a genetics doctor. She calls her father and he's she says, Dad, I cannot stop the bleeding. I don't know what's going on. I fear that I've lost the baby. I, I I'm, you know, I'm certain something is extremely wrong here. So he comes over to the house and he leaves a note on the kitchen table as they are taking Lois to the hospital. And he says, we're going to Roosevelt Hospital. Roosevelt Hospital is in Manhattan, it's in New York. Lois and Bill were living uh, on Park Avenue at that time, in Manhattan. And he says, we're going to Roosevelt Hospital, meet us there as soon as you can. Now this is about six o'clock and he leaves the note and Lois is rushed as quick as they could get her to the hospital. Nine o'clock the next morning, in comes Bill Wilson to the hospital. He stinks to high hell. It is apparent from the odor And the the visual that he has not only pissed in his pants several times, but he has vomited on himself several times. He has not brushed his teeth. He has not changed his clothes. He stinks. And by this time, Dr. Burnham has spent the entire night in the hospital putting his daughter back together. And he leaves. uh, Now it's the next morning. He's got his own patients, his own duties in the hospital. But he leaves a note at the nurse's desk No one is to be admitted to my daughter's room as a visitor without seeing me first. Because he wants to know where in the hell was Bill Wilson for the entire night? Where the hell was this guy? The next day, Bill comes to the hospital. Now, I want to also tell you something. Dr. Burnham and Mrs. Burnham were no big fans of Bill Wilson before this. First of all, he's younger than Lois. Second of all, he comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Bill came from East Dorset, Vermont, and the Burnhams had a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. Manchester, Vermont is right across from East Dorset, and it is where the wealthy have summer homes or the wealthy go to to live. And the Burnhams and the Thatchers Both have summer homes there, as do the Hazards. That's Roland Hazard's family. That's Ebby Thatcher's family. And if you're keeping score at home, it's also Lois Burnham's family. So when they say they went from city to country, city to country, the country was Vermont, was Manchester, and the city, of course, was New York. So... Here are the Burnhams, and they're looking at this Bill Wilson that their daughter is goo goo gaga in love with. And they think he's a putz. He's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's younger than Lois. But there was something else that Bill did constantly that Dr. Burnham and Mrs. Burnham didn't like. He was constantly trying to push stock on Dr. Burnham so that Dr. Burnham would buy stock. Dr. Burnham was not really much of a risk taker. uh, And he really resented the fact that Bill did this constantly. And Bill would throw in their faces, the Burnhams, throw in their faces how well he was doing. Look, I just bought your wife this dress. I just bought your wife this fur coat. I, you know, again, product of the time. Fur coats were very in fashion, very tray chic at that time. Now, if you wear one, you probably get blood thrown on you by you know somebody because it's it's considered very uh, very bad, very um, inconsiderate to animals. That's the word I was looking for. You know, it's very cruel to the animals to wear a fur coat. But in those days, it was considered wonderful. You know, chinchilla and mink and, and a fox and all this other stuff. It was considered very, very Trey chic. Well, let's take a look at this. And the Burnhams didn't like Bill Wilson. Now the ectopic pregnancy thing comes up and Bill is drinking more and more and more and more. Well, they didn't like him more and more and more and more. They liked him less and less and less and less. And they kept saying to Lois, you don't need this. You can do better. So now with all that I've told you let's take a look because Bill Wilson is coming back from Canada. Remember he went out to next morning after the after the Great Depression started he goes to Canada and he's living out in Canada for the rest of 29 30 it is now 31 1931 and let's pick it up at the bottom of page 4. We went to live with my wife's parents. Again, this is very traumatic. Could you just imagine you are going to live under the same roof, not because you choose it, not because they are inviting you, not because of something positive. You are going somewhere to live where A, You're lucky to have this roof to put over your head. And B, they don't want you there. They don't like you. They think you're a yutz. The only reason they are putting food in your stomach and a roof over your freaking head is because their daughter chose you as their husband. Otherwise, they would throw you in in the gutter and leave you there they have no use for you. So with that in mind, let's continue. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. He's in, he's in Manhattan and the Burnhams live in Brooklyn. Well, now that's his house too. So he's in Manhattan because that's where Wall Street is. And he he tells his cab driver, "Take me to 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn." So it's not that far; it's just over the bridge to go to Brooklyn, and then 182 Clinton Street is walking distance, you know, from that. So I've been there, and I hope when when we next go to uh, uh, Vision. Con- Uh, convention, it won't be this year, but next year, when we go to a vision convention, you'll go to 182 Clinton Street, and you'll go to Stepping Stones. That is my wish for you. That is my sincere wish for you. Stepping Stones is a must for you, as is 182 Clinton Street. So you can stand there fresh skinned and glowing too. Okay, now, bottom line is, is that he, he can't pay the cab driver. So he's convinced that Lois is going to have some money. He goes in, she's sleeping. He goes in her purse. There's no money. There's no cash. He can't pay the guy. So he goes out there to tell the guy, you know, some BS, you know, how I'm going to pay you and blah, blah, blah. Well, the guy starts swinging. You know, he gets into a fight with this with this cab driver and he loses this job opportunity that he had. The times were very different then. All right, mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years, for five years, or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. She's going to work at Macy's. Lois was an interior decorator. She went to work at Macy's and she made $19 a week salary. And with commission, she was making about $26, $27 a week. She was an interior decorator at Macy's. She also worked, I think, at a couple of other, I know one at least, uh, other uh, department stores. But she never made more than that. But that was a livable wage at that time uh, if, if you were going to live very meagerly. So the bottom line is, his wife is working. Here's the big shot. Remember when we read the words, I had arrived? Remember when we read those words? Remember when we read the words, my judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions? Do you remember on page three, we read the words, uh, the great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling? Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and shattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. You remember we read those words? Well, now we're reading words that say he's drinking at home. So here's his life. She goes off to work. She has to throw herself together, go to work, stand on her feet. That was in the days when department stores and stuff were open, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And she's on her feet the entire time. He's sitting there drinking gin and grapefruit juice. He's drinking gin and grapefruit juice. He's sitting there, He most of the time he's not even brushing his teeth. He's not putting himself together. And this is what she comes home to. This is what she leaves and this is what she comes home to. So try to get a picture for the big shot of Wall Street, our sumptuous apartment, uh, uh, Park Avenue. You know, he's, he's got fair weather friends. Now he's sitting there alone, drunk. Now he's sitting there and stinks and sits there by himself all day, smoking, drinking. This is his life. Do you see the progression of the disease? It doesn't get better and better. It gets worse and worse over time. So the disease is progressing. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. And my life got worse and worse and worse and worse. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I do. You bet I do. Let's go to the top of five. I became an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places. He was once the fair-haired boy. He was once one of the darlings of Wall Street. He was once the guy, the prince, living on Park Avenue. He was sought after. His ideas were followed to the tune of paper millions. And here he is. They don't want him around. He smells. He's drunk. They don't want him there. That's how quick it turned. Page five liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Now I could do a whole retreat. You want me to come to your town? We're gonna do a retreat. I could do a whole retreat just on this sentence. I could do Friday night, Saturday all day, Sunday morning, get you out the door by noon with a lot I still didn't say, okay? I could do six, seven hours, just on this sentence alone. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. When I was a little boy, my mother would give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or I would steal some corned beef or some salami or pastrami or tongue or roast beef or brisket out of the refrigerator because that's the business my dad was in was deli meats. And I would take it and it would get me high as a kite. Or I would take, you guys won't remember Salerno butter cookies. I grew up in Chicago. I'm born and raised in Chicago. And they used to have a a commercial. Mommy, what is it, dear? I want a Salerno butter cookie. And there were holes in the middle of them. And we would take these cookies and put them on our fingers. And then we would have these cookies on our fingers and it looked like big rings. But anyway, I could go through a whole box of Salerno butter cookies by the time I was very, very young, maybe six or seven, I could eat a whole box. But You can take the boy out of Chicago, but you can't take Chicago out of the boy. You just can't. I am who I am. I'm a product of my my generation. I'm a product of Chicago too. That's where I was born and raised. I went to Mather High School, graduated in 72. So anyway, it became a necessity. So what would get me high on food when I was six would no longer do me much good by the time I was 10. And by the time I was 15, I needed more food. So these occasional binges were not gonna cut it. I was eating constantly, constantly, constantly. And in my life with my parents, meals were just a break in the snacking. They were just a break in the binging. I would eat my way to the meal, then I would have the meal, and then I would start eating immediately after the meal was over. So it was just one continuous situation. How many meals did I eat a day? Essentially, one. I would start in the morning and I would eat all day long. And that's how I lived after a certain point in my life, especially once I had more money and I had a car, I had mobility, I had more independence. And this was my life. And it was horrible. It was just horrible. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? Yes, I do. Do I identify? Yes, I do. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. Let's continue. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day. Often three got to be routine. Do you remember when he said that <clears throat> on page three in the, in the and in, in the bottom of the page and toward the bottom, it says, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, not less serious, more serious, continuing all day and almost every night. Now, it says at the top of four, golf permitted drinking every day and every night. Now his drinking is increasing. He's drinking three bottles of gin a day. If I drank one bottle of gin, I would probably be in a flipping hospital for a long time. He's drinking three bottles of gin per day. He is an extremely low bottom alcoholic. I am an extremely low bottom compulsive overeater. Low bottom just signifies my weight was higher than normal, higher than most. And my consumption of food was much greater than most. That's all that means. Okay. So he's drinking three bottles of gin per day. Sometimes a small deal in the stock market would net a few hundred dollars. I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly. And I began to wake in very early in the morning, shaking violently. He's got delirium tremens now. He's got delirium tremens. And the delirium tremens are very serious. You know, I used to go to AA meetings in Eugene, Oregon. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. That's the T-shirt I'm wearing today, Oregon Ducks. They're playing basketball later on this afternoon. And um, I had to go to AA there because they're, they don't have OA in Eugene, Oregon. They don't. They, I don't know if they have it now. I haven't lived there in 20 years. But when I lived there, they didn't have OA. You had to go to AA or die. And when I went to AA, some of these guys were shaking so badly, they looked like an Airedale trying to crap out a peach pit. They were just shaking so badly. Now here's the problem. The heart is a muscle and the heart can be affected by delirium tremens. And when the heart is affected by delirium tremens, we're going to miss you, but you won't be around. You won't be around. We will miss you. We'll remember you fondly, but you won't be around. But here's the thing. I had a lot of indications things were not going well. I don't have the time to list them because all I get is an hour a week, but I was crapping my pants all the time because my stomach was in complete revolution. I was peeing in my pants all the time. I had diarrhea constantly, vomiting constantly, horrible, horrible reactions, couldn't fit into clothes. I had a closet full of clothes, none of which I fit into. I couldn't buy my clothes in a regular store. I don't have the time to tell you my whole life story. When on my first date with a girl, I was 35 years old. I couldn't get in a car, I couldn't get out of a car. I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything comfortably. Horrible, horrible, nightmarish existence. It's not a life. It's an existence and it's a nightmare. I began to wake in very early in the morning, shaking violently, a tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. So now he's drinking three bottles of gin a day and a half a dozen bottles of beer. That would get a rhinoceros reeling. That's how much liquor he's consuming on a daily basis. A hippopotamus wouldn't be able to walk through the river in Africa. He'd be falling on his face if he drank that much liquor. And the amount of food I was consuming was unbelievable. The amount of calories per day was unreal. I'm eating 14, 15 egg McMuffins a day. I'm drinking four, five, six, ten 10 McDonald's milkshakes a day. And that was just part of what I was doing, part of what I was doing. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. Yes. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. What were these periods of sobriety? They were diets, guys. He was going on a diet. He was using his unaided willpower to stop drinking. Did I go on diets? From the time I was about five or six, I did. The world terrorized me and it gave me a sense of wrong. And it gave me a sense that I was bad, that existentially I was evil because I was too stupid to see that I shouldn't be fat. And people thought that I wanted to be fat. People would ask me all the time and they would ask me incessantly, why do you want to be so fat? why do you want to eat so much? And I didn't have any way of answering them. I was six, I was five, I was whatever. And I didn't have an answer. But I knew one thing, I did not want to be that fat. Bill didn't want to be that drunk. Bill didn't want to be drunk. Bill's gonna start drinking in 1917 and he's not gonna get sober till December of 1934. And for 17 years, Bill Wilson is gonna be drunker and drunker and drunker and drunker as time goes on. Does he want to be like this, a disgrace? A disgrace to himself and a disgrace to his wife and his wife's family? absolutely not. But he has a disease and so did I. I was compelled to eat that food against my will. I was compelled to eat food that was crap. Truthfully speaking, most of the food that I was eating was crap. And I was eating it because I didn't know what else to do. Shoving it in my mouth, burnt food, frozen food, crappy food, spoiled food, didn't matter what it was. As long as I could get it in my mouth, it did the trick. And it made me able to live another day. It was killing me, but it was giving me the impetus to go on with life. On the previous page, it says here, I would not jump. I went back to the bar. I went back to the bar. And then he says here, tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. I think they call that liquid courage. Did I get that from Chips Ahoy and Oreos and Salerno butter cookies and good humor bars? You bet I did. You bet I did. You bet. Do I think like Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat like Bill drinks? Yes. And if you're identifying it, and I can see a lot of you shaking your head up and down, you know, up and down, up and down, even some of the bulimics and anorexics, they're seeing this progression in their own life because I can see 24, 25 of you and your heads are going up and down and up and down. The disease gets worse and worse, or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here if it didn't. If the disease was the same as it was when you first noticed the problem, you probably wouldn't have come here. But no matter what you did, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. worse. At the birthday this year in in Los Angeles, one of the speakers, which I didn't get a chance to hear because I was doing Big Book, they were saying, all other methods failed. That was the topic. All other methods failed. If the methods that you tried did not fail, you wouldn't be here. Gradually, I'm in the middle of five. Gradually, things got worse. Notice he never says things stayed the same or things got better. Those words are never written or spoken by Bill. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point in 1932. In 1932, stocks were so low that it was determined by anybody that had any money at all whatsoever that this is the time to buy because the stocks only have one place to go at this time. And the place they're gonna go is up because they were very low. So Bill's on one of his diets, he's not drinking, he's on one of his diets, And these guys from Cherry Hill, New Jersey come to him. And a number of years ago, I did a retreat in uh, Mount Laurel, I think it is, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. And uh, I did a retreat there and my friend Kim G and a bunch of the people there took me to dinner in Cherry Hill. And I was so excited because it gave me an opportunity to say to you today, I've been to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I breathed Bill's air. But uh, so anyway, these guys come to him and they ask him his advice. And they say to him, look, we wanna work with you, Bill, but I've heard some of your shenanigans with the drinking. Now, nobody knew anything about alcoholism, including Bill at that time. And he's on one of his diets. And he says, I quit drinking. You don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't drink anymore. So they say, "Okay, we'll meet at a hotel in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. This is 1932. I had somehow formed a group to buy. Back to the paragraph. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. What happened there? What happened? Well, a guy brought a jug of whiskey. He brought a jug and the jug was homemade because this was in the days of prohibition. So you couldn't sell or distribute liquor, create, manufacture or sell liquor in the United States. And the guy makes this liquor and he calls it Jersey Lightning the jug goes around bill doesn't take a drink goes around again the guy taps bill on the shoulder and says hey i made this myself it's kosher it's vegan it's vegetarian it's keto it's atkins you know all the i made this just for you right these are all the bullshit you heard in your life right it's it's this oh and gluten free i almost forgot it's gluten free right it's gluten free So Bill takes a swig of this whiskey. He didn't really say that. He takes a swig of the whiskey and Bill Wilson will not come out of that hotel room for three more days. He will be dead drunk. He'll be so drunk he cannot move because once he took that first swig, which the mental twist compelled him to take, He triggered the physical allergy, and he did not come out of that room for three days. The chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I told myself this has to stop many, many times. Many, many times. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. So once again, he's going to write in the family Bible. Once again, he's going to swear to God. Once again, he's going to affirm to Lois he's done drinking. He's not going to be drinking anymore. And what happens, page five, last paragraph, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? I do. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. No matter how desperately I wanted to lose weight, I kept gaining weight. No matter how desperately I saw that I could not eat Almond Joys or Chips Ahoy or Chunky Bars or Good Humor Bars or whatever, I ate them. I could not stop. I could not stop. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. I thought I was crazy, but I I didn't care after a while. I just didn't give a damn. I just wanted to die. Now I want to live. I'm at the end of my life. I'm gonna be 70 years old here in about 10 minutes at the end of May. And now I want to live. I want to live so desperately. I can't even begin to tell you. I have something, someone to live for. And I want to live, but I don't know how much more time I have. I don't know. I've done immeasurable damage to my body. In March, March 11th, I go in for a test on my heart to see where there's blockages. I have plaque in my heart. I have some blockages. Are they worse? Do do I need any, you know, do I need a stent? Do I need open heart surgery? Do I need whatever? Because they have to keep an eye on me because of the things I did to myself. That scares the crap out of me. It's not much longer now. It's in March. I got to do it. So what's that going to reveal? Well, try that on for size. I want to live. I just want to live. I wish I had a time machine to go back with what I know now, but I just want to live. Bottom of five. Renewing my resolve, going back on my diet. I tried again. Sometime past and confidence, top of six, confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. Let's stop right there. I got into tops, take off pounds sensibly. I don't know that they have that anymore. And I don't know that they had that in your part of the world. But in the Midwest, we had Weight Watchers and we had tops. And I I used to go with, with some people. I lost a lot of weight. And I thought to myself, I've lost An enormous amount of weight. Weight came off of me very easily. I was very heavy. I was young. My digestive, you know, my my system, I was young. And the weight would fall off of me. And then I would be eating again, knowing I wasn't going to put on 100 pounds by eating one this or two of those. But not only did I put on the weight I lost, but I always was on the bonus plan. I always gained more than I lost. I never just gained it back. I always gained it back with interest. In other words, I was on the penalty plan. I would gain it back and much, much, much more. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I do. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. What is it that caused Bill to take that first drink? It was the mental twist. What is it that caused him, as we read, as the whiskey rose to my head, uh, I was beating, no wait, I in no time I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. I was always going to do better tomorrow and next time but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. And that's exactly what I would tell myself. As long as I've broken my diet for today, I might as well eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. That's the way my brain worked. And that's the way I almost died. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. You know, I never woke up in the morning thinking to myself, I'm so glad I ate that pizza. I'm so glad I ate four or five slabs of ribs at a sitting. I'm so glad I was the good humor man's best customer. I'm so glad that when I walk into a restaurant, the owners are so glad to see me. I never, ever said, I'm so happy about that. I was always guilt-ridden and shame-ridden, and the only thing that would take away the guilt and the shame was more food, was more food. The courage to do battle was not there, my brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapsed and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale, 12 glasses of ale. He's e- he was drinking six bottles of beer. Now he's drinking 12 bottles of ale, 12 glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. He drank two bottles of gin and a half a dozen glasses of ale. That would get a hippopotamus drunk. But let's take a look at some things that will illustrate not Harlan's life as much as the progression of Bill's disease. Let's go back to page one, and it says at the bottom of page one, 22 in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation? My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. Does that look a little different than the way he is today, where he's thinking about killing himself? Let's go to page four. No, yeah, let's go to page four. He says here on page four, the papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. Does that sound like the guy who wants to kill himself on page six? No. But what's happening is the progression of the disease is doing more than getting him drunk. The progression of the disease is deteriorating his attitudes. It's deteriorating his mental outlook and it is making him from an optimist to a pessimist. Did it do that to me? You bet it did. You bet it did. Did it take him from a place of wanting to live and thrive and dream and succeed to a place where he didn't dare dream, where he didn't dare think about success, where all he could think about was getting his next drink? You bet it did. Did it make him ashamed to look at Lois? Yes. Did it make him ashamed? Did it erode his faith in God, in others, in Lois, in life? Yes. It destroyed his attitude. And it almost destroyed him. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? Yes. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I drink the way Bill? Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. I must be home. I'm in Overeaters Anonymous. And somebody said to me in 1979 Welcome home, Harlan. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. My mind and my body are marvelous mechanisms. I am a survivor of myself. The physical and the emotional pain that I have survived, the years and years and years of isolation no sex, no, no contact with the opposite sex, no nothing. Even within my marriage, we were platonic. We slept in the same bed. We didn't touch each other. The only time we touched each other is if we bumped into each, each other in the hallway. I had no life. People are not meant to live that way. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about the ability to look in the mirror and see myself and say, I look good. I feel good. I had no such ability. I couldn't dream. I couldn't be successful at anything. Life beat me down. It took me to the woodshed and beat me down. And at some point in my life, in my teenage years, my 20s for sure, I believed that I was a horrible, horrible person. And the self-loathing, the self-loathing permeated every cell of my being. And when I would look at myself either in a mirror or in a reflection of a store window, I hated what I saw. I hated what I saw. And the time passes me by and it makes me sad today. What I've lost makes me sad. And we're not supposed to shut the door on the past. nor No, we're not supposed to regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. But my past haunts me. I've had the promises come true in my life, but my past does haunt me. What I missed out on haunts me. And why, why did I miss out on all this stuff? Why was I punished like that? That's what I thought, I was being punished. I didn't know, I simply did not know what I had done to anybody that would make it so horrific that I too live in the world just like you guys with a family that I didn't have and a love that I didn't have and a sense of togetherness and belonging that I didn't have. And the first glimmer of that was when I came in here. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Now we're gonna come back to that paragraph when we rejoin next week. I hope that this has been helpful because this story Bill's story is a story to be studied. We're going to get into so much history and so much unbelievable uh, gold in this story. So stick around over the next few weeks and please understand that this is a story, but it's not a story. It's a it's a textbook and it's a textbook in that we look at this we we study it and we see ourselves it's not that you must know about bill wilson you're never going to meet bill wilson he's dead he died in 1971 you're not going to meet him you're not going to run into him but my suggestion is keep an open mind so you can see yourself in his story very very important and thank you f- hundred and sixty of you today. I'm blown away. I'm absolutely blown away by it. So anyhow, um, I hope that you will have a great day. Oh, just a few announcements before I turn it back to you. July 12th, 13th and 14th, we're having an urban retreat. It's an urban big book study and it will take place in Phoenix, Arizona. And it is going to be at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Phoenix, very close to the airport. So we're hoping that you will come and we're hoping that you will enjoy it. Another announcement is that tomorrow night, Monday night on our Scottsdale group is a business meeting. So we're hoping you will attend. We would rather make decisions with you than make decisions for you. So, those two announcements. And the other third announcement is this on March the 10th, daylight savings time will come back. And when it does, our nighttime meetings will begin one hour later. This meeting will not change unless you are in the state of Arizona, in which case it begins one hour earlier. But if you're not in the state, State of Arizona, the Saturday meetings do not change at all, so they will not change. Okay, I'm going to give it back to Audrey.